how can we prepare for another year that looks just as challenging as the last? You have to put on that armor and strengthen your heart for whatever battles lie ahead. That's today on our podcast. Hey folks, it's Karen G. from the Tower Hill Communications team. Thanks for tuning in to our weekly podcast. You can listen here each week to catch up on our latest sermons, and we hope what you hear inspires you to want more so you'll continue on your own personal faith journey. We're starting off this new year with a sermon series called The Heart of War. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason right now for part one. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. It's great to be worshiping with you today as we start our new sermon series that I'm really excited about because I think it helps to answer a lot of questions that come up, especially when we start struggling with our faith. Well, it's wonderful to be here. If you're new with us, first time watching, a very special welcome to you. Hope you'll have a chance to join us in person. We'd love to welcome you and get to know you a little bit. But in this sermon series now, we're about to jump into which is called The Heart of War, little play on that very famous book, The Art of War, but The Heart of War, How Deeper Surrender Can Lead to a More Complete Victory. This is a series that's all about answering some tough questions that we tend to ask ourselves, especially when we feel like we're far away from God, or we feel like uh, we're not really good at doing this Christian life. We seem to keep messing up, and sometimes we just give up. We just say, well, I can't do it. I can't be a good enough Christian. I can't, I can't live a life of faith because I keep screwing it all up. Maybe I just don't have it in me to be a follower of Jesus. Or maybe some of those deep hurts that we've experienced in our lives are just kind of holding us back from trusting God enough. I mean, my goodness, I think we all probably have some trust issues based on the baggage that we carry. But I think some of these questions that we start asking sometimes are like, hey, listen, Jesus made me new, so why don't I feel like it? Okay, so I put my faith in Jesus, and and he made me a new creation, but it sure seems like I'm a lot like I was before. Or maybe I I was new, or I felt new at first, but now over time, maybe months, years, decades later, I don't know, I don't feel new anymore. What happened? What does that mean? What does that mean for my faith? Or why do I still struggle with things, still struggle with sin in my life? Maybe still struggle with the same sins I've been struggling with over and over again. What does that mean? Is that some sort of indication of my uh, relationship with God? Am I not in God's good graces? Am I not a child of God if I keep sinning this way? Or why am I getting worse at this Christian life? It seems like I used to be so much better at it than I am today. What does that mean? And finally, I I think for a lot of us, it lands in a place that's like, hey, am I really saved? And maybe that's not a word that you use to describe it, but am I really in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ where I'm going to be spending an eternity with him? Am I? I don't know. It's not really showing up in my life. Well, if you've ever felt this or asked these questions, you're in really good company. Because I immediately think of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember his conversion story in Acts chapter 9? 
Yeah, it's like this blinding light knocks him off of his horse. This incredible moment, this life-transforming moment where he hears the voice of Jesus asking him, why are you persecuting me? Right. So it was this incredible moment. And in a lot of ways, we look to Paul as kind of the example. Paul's the example of faith and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to turn our lives around and, or, you know, more accurately, allow God to turn our lives around and use who we are for his purpose and his glory. But then you get Paul in places like the book of Romans here in chapter seven, where he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I find it really encouraging that Paul even felt like that sometimes. So what is it? And I think more importantly, what do we do about it? How do we get around it? Now, if you listen to our sermon last week, we talked a bit about the five things God uses to grow your faith, something that we've used for years as a way of kind of understanding how to put ourselves in position to grow. But I think first, we sort of have to understand something really, really important. That even though we may have doubts, even though we may not have done a very good job of following Jesus, all is not lost, despite maybe what you've heard or what you think. There's a wonderful book. Now, Pastor Teresa and I looked at this with you, gosh, I want to say maybe six, seven years ago. And we played with this idea a little bit, but I really wanted to dig in and make it a central part of this sermon series this time because I feel like the message is really in lockstep with what we're talking about with all of these questions. It's it's an old book that's out of print uh, by a pastor. I think he was the pastor at Hollywood Presbyterian Church, Lane Adams, who wrote this book called How Come It's Taking So Long for Me to Get Better? Now, funny thing is, I made that book cover <laughs> because uh, the book copy that I have um, doesn't have a cover, and I couldn't even find the proper cover online. So it's it's an old book out of print. But what, what Lane Adams is on to here, I think is helpful for all of us. In fact, he said when he discovered, you know, kind of this idea of spiritual formation, it said it changed his life. He said it changed his life. So what's he talking about? He he starts by talking about the his experience in the Pacific Theater in World War II where he talked about how the U.S. and allies quickly lost possessions island by island in the Pacific. And um, some of you lived that experience, and many of you learned about it in your history books or uh, in film. And, you know, we know that we took a beating, right? But there was a 100% effective strategy. This blows my mind. A 100% effective strategy to taking the islands back. Whenever the allies would decide on if an island was important enough to take back or they needed to take it back, they had a strategy that worked every single time. And this is the strategy. So they would start out. I love these. These are real photos from uh, the Pacific Theater. Uh, credits below. And um, it, they would start by softening the targets, right? They would use aircraft. They would use pinpoint shelling from ships offshore, and they would soften the targets, so that, and this is the most important thing, so they could establish a beachhead. And in fact, it, so once they, uh, you know, you've seen in the movies where if you, if you didn't live it or didn't know about uh, this campaign in World War II, you've seen it. They establish a section of the beach where they can then bring in all of their 
equipment, and wage war on the rest of the island. Now, establishing the beachhead was such an important part of the process. When they would land, the Marines would confidently radio back. The Marines have landed and the situation is well in hand. In other words, they were declaring victory even before the island had been fully taken. Because once they were on there, once they established a beachhead, they knew it was as good as over. They had everything they needed in order to take back the island. And so they would bring supplies and they would bring tanks and they would bring bring all sorts of things and more troops and they would set up and establish this beachhead and they would systematically root out the enemy wherever they were hiding elsewhere in the island. You know, this is a really fascinating statistic that never in World War II were the Marines pushed off an island once a beachhead was established. Never. Not one time. That's incredible. So what Lane Adams does here is he, he draws this out, and then he asks this question. He says, what if this is like the Christian life? What if the reason that we struggle in our faith sometimes is because the island isn't fully conquered yet? He says this, we are all islands of self in the hands of the enemy. Conversion is like invasion, and the Christian life is like a war. It's like Jesus establishes a beachhead. So we respond to the invitation of Jesus, and I think of Revelation 3.20, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And when you say yes, the Holy Spirit establishes the beachhead in your heart, which is good news because the Holy Spirit's not getting pushed off the island. But it also kind of explains why the island isn't fully conquered yet. We and our sinful nature are the enemy battling against the Holy Spirit. He goes on, the beachhead God establishes is, is instantaneous. The battle for the island called you is the long-range process of maturing. You know what it is? I feel like we often see spiritual formation as conquest or ground taken. In other words, if I'm going to be more like Jesus, I have to sort of root out these sinful behaviors in our life one by one. I need to focus on them. I need to concentrate on them. I need to break those habits and everything. And then I conquer that thing, whatever it is. And in a way, that's definitely true. But I don't think it's as much about conquest as it is about surrender. I don't think it's as much about ground taken as about, as about ground yielded or ground given to God. Because the thing is, our own human ability to wage war on sin is limited. We can only do so much. Our sinful nature is going to end up winning. We need our redeemed nature. We need the God in us who is greater than the one who is in the world to change things. We need to consistently and systematically yield ground to God in our lives so that he can root it out. And he could change us and he could take more and more of our heart, our island, to be owned by God and not by us. And what does it look like? You know, um, I think it's really helpful to know, like, we, we actually have some measures by which we see if it's working or not, if the campaign's gaining ground or not. And that is by the level of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. You know the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When we have more of this in our life, 
in our lives, that's an indication that we've been successfully yielding ground and God is claiming more and more victory. So how does this spiritual formation process begin? How does it begin? Well, again, I think it begins with like Revelation 3.20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Step one is a Jesus invasion where he comes in and he establishes a beachhead in our hearts. Now, and we'll get to this in the weeks ahead, the size of the beachhead, which in the Pacific Theater really didn't matter. It could have been a small beachhead or a large one. The size of the beachhead, I think, is different for each and every person, depending on your experience of conversion. Like, for example, for the Apostle Paul, I think it was pretty dramatic. I think it was a large part of the island. It was a very large beachhead. For others, maybe a smaller one. But that, in the end, doesn't even matter. Because once Jesus is established, he's not getting pushed off. Now, what's the first thing Jesus does, right? As he establishes that beachhead, he reveals and validates who I really am, my true identity. And this is really important. Because part of living a life apart from God is about all the identities that other people put on you or you put on yourself. The most important thing to start, the most important starting point is to understand who you really are in Christ. And that's exactly what he does. He reveals and validates my true identity. Here's what I mean. You know the show The Voice? You're familiar with the show? Uh, you know, let's say I want to be a contestant on The Voice. And because I think to myself, yeah, you know, I'm a pretty good singer. And uh, I had a couple of people tell me, oh, yeah, you're a pretty good singer. But who really knows if I'm a good singer? Like, I would really need an honest and open and dear friend to tell me if I wasn't a good singer so I don't embarrass myself on the show, right? I need somebody who knows me well to reveal that I'm a good singer. I just don't want to go by my own assessment. I need somebody who knows me well to lovingly say, uh, you know, Jason, maybe not so much. Or, yeah, go for it. Go for it. But that's not all. The real power of the voice is, you know, it's one thing to sort of feel like I'm good enough to go on the show. It's quite another thing for one of the mega super music stars to choose me based on my voice. It's a validation of someone who has authority in the industry. That is huge. For me to really say, yeah, I am a singer. I am good enough. I am possibly a professional recording artist. I need those two things. I need revealed by those who know me best and validated by someone with authority. Now, in my life, who knows me better than Jesus Christ? Who knows me better than God? Who has more authority than God? Therefore, in order to understand my true self, who I really am, I have to know what God says about me. There's a couple of related stories here um, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where we see this revelation and this affirmation uh, of identity, true identity, and how important that is in the beginning of the journey of faith. We just last week, we talked a little bit about Jesus' baptism. This is Matthew uh, chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
So this is a moment where Jesus' true identity is revealed by God the Father. It's something that God does. God reveals and validates our true identity. And this is a moment where he does that for Jesus. And I know it sort of like gets your head in a knot thinking, well, yeah, but Jesus is God. Yeah, but he was just trying to show that this is how it works, that God reveals who we really are. He's not just Jesus of Nazareth, who we see in the flesh. He's also the second person of the Trinity, who God the Father reveals in this moment, his real identity. Notice what happens next. This is so wild to me. The very next thing that happens, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Did you catch that? If you are the Son of God. In other words, God the Father just revealed that you are his Son, and he revealed your true identity. What is temptation? But it is the the luring of you to believe a different identity or to question your identity in Jesus Christ. What is sin but to live out a different identity than the, than the person who you really are and called to be by God? This is so huge. Temptation is every bit about identity. Who are you going to believe? You believe what God says? You can believe what everyone else says. And of course, you know the story of the temptation where Jesus literally gets offered the world. And turns it down because he knows who he really is. He has such a sense of identity. Once you know who you are, it changes things. And then we see Jesus doing this with other people. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So what did Jesus do? He did exactly what the Father does. And I think that's meant to show us that Jesus and the Father are one. He reveals and validates who we really are. He's not just Simon. He is Cephas. He is the rock upon whom the church will be built. Right? This is what Jesus says. This is your real identity. You are not the sort of obscure fisherman. I'm giving you a new name, your real name, your name of purpose. Jesus reveals and validates our identity. And this is what happens with us. When we let him in and he doesn't force his way and he's standing at the door knocking, we have to open the door. He establishes a beachhead and he tells us who we are. We are his child. We belong to him. We are part of his plan and purpose for the world. We are his beloved. We are his blessed. And then the second thing is when I know who I am, my journey becomes clear. I mean, this is true. You know, this is true in life. When you know who you are, it's like light on your path ahead of you. Give you an example. You know, let's say you're in college and you discover, hey, I really love medicine and I'm going to work towards being a pediatrician. That sheds light on your path. And then you could see the steps and discover the steps that it takes to get to that point. When you know who you are, your path becomes clearer. This is true in our spiritual formation as well. When you know who you are, when you, when you sift through all the false identities and get to your real identity, 
It clears things up and often illuminates the path ahead. And it's not just knowing, you know, where I'm going, right? It's not just knowing who I am. It's knowing whose I am. When I know whose I am, I have confidence to move forward. I belong to him and he'll never be pushed off the island of my heart. And that gives you confidence in your forward movement, in your life, in your faith, in everything that you do. This is the beginning of the spiritual formation process. This is how it works. And I think this helps answer some of these questions of like, why am I no good at being a Christian? Or why do I not feel the same? Well, it's because there's enemy held territory in your heart that needs to be surrendered. But make no mistake, once the beachhead is established, everything is well in hand. You belong to Jesus and nothing is going to change that. So step one, let Jesus establish the beachhead. Let him in. And for those who have been walking with Jesus a long time, how can he make that beachhead bigger? I want to encourage you. Pray. Invite him in more. Say, listen, God, I know that I've, I've kind of left you just a little teeny sliver of beach, and I, I want more. I want to surrender more so that we can tackle the rest of the island. Maybe you want to pray for God to come in. Open that door that he's knocking on in your heart and let him in. This is what many call salvation when you do that. But salvation is both instantaneous and it's a process, isn't it? It's a constantly being forming, our heart constantly being formed more and more into the beating heart of Jesus Christ. Let Jesus establish the beachhead and let him start to Take over that heart of yours that is at war. Well, more on this in the coming weeks. I pray that this is helpful for you. And if you ever want to reach out and talk about the message or, or get connected or find a way to get with other Christians and do this in real life, I want to encourage you to sign up for a small group. Reach out to me via email, jason at towerhillchurch.org. Happy to talk with you. And I hope and pray that we all can have a deeper surrender so we can experience a more complete victory. Amen.